Hey everyone, it's the Beyond Politics Podcast. I'm Matt Robeson. My co-host, former Congressman Paul Hodes, is off today, but we have another outstanding co-host slash guest slash unindicted co-conspirator, which I guess is the term that's all the rage these days, Mike Baranowski. This is part one of a special crossover two-part episode that Beyond Politics did with a great podcast called The Politics Guys, who are a group of not just guys, they're politics professors and legal scholars, and they do what Paul and I do on Beyond Politics. They go under the surface a little deeper to talk about what's driving the stuff we see in the world of government, policy, politics, news in general. We have a lot of the same kinds of expert guests on, and we thought that there was a real simpatico here. So what you're about to hear is part one of the conversation between me and Mike, who is one of the main hosts of that show. We wanted to pair up his insights as a political scientist with my insights from more than a decade as a congressional chief of staff and campaign manager and talk about why has Congress become so broken? And then for part two of the show, we're going to hop over to the Politics Guys podcast feed and finish it up over there, talk about solutions and how the heck we fix things. So, if you're new to this podcast and you're coming over from the Politics Guys, welcome. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you'll hit that subscribe or follow button, leave us a rating or a review on whatever podcast platform you use. And when you're done here, I hope you'll jump over to the Politics Guys podcast and do the same thing over there. Give them a follow. Give them a rating. Of course, leave either of us a comment. Let us know what you think. We're always interested in your feedback. And with that, here we go. What's wrong with Congress and how do we fix it? I'm Matt Robeson. And I'm Mike Baranowski. And this is a special crossover podcast between Beyond Politics and The Politics Guys. I guess we should welcome each other to our shows. We're doing a crossover. Welcome to our show. Yes, welcome, man. Right. So wait, tell me, who are The Politics Guys? I love, by the way, I love the title of your, your coming up with a good name for a podcast is actually harder than one might think. And you guys chose, it follows the snakes on a plane principle. It's like, if you want to go see a movie and you see a movie called Snakes on a Plane, you know what you're going to get? Snakes on a plane. What you get on your show is the politics guys. Who are you guys? Well, you know, the, the idea, and we started the show nearly nine years ago, and we, my co-host, my original co-host, Jay, saw it as a sort of a cross between kind of a car talk meets crossfire sort of thing. Now, those are some oh, sort of dated it. references, but that was the idea. We just, we felt that there wasn't enough sort of rational, civil, bipartisan discussion that wasn't just people yelling at each other. And and we thought, well, let's try to do a show uh, of our own. And now, I don't know, 700 some episodes later, <laughs> here we are. I love your elevator pitch. You know, that crossover, the problem you end up with is that it becomes crosstalk and car fire. I'm not sure that's uh, quite what you're going for, but it's actually, it's a great show. It's really, it's worth it. So I will give the push right now to the Beyond Politics listeners. If you like what we do, check out the politics guys. It's well worth it. And you've got a lot of, you're you're wonky. You guys are, you're poli sci profs. You're legal people. You really get into nuts and bolts. It's cool stuff for people who are, I mean this really affectionately, a little nerdy about this. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, th I think people who 
follow politics podcasts tend to be a, a little bit nerdy in the best possible way. And there are people and, and we love them. And, and so, yeah, absolutely. I do get a, I try not to get too deep in the weeds, but you know, a little bit, yeah, as a political science professor, but you know, for, for the politics guys audience, can, can you say a little bit about beyond politics? Yeah. Beyond politics is a show that came out of actually a radio show that my former boss in Congress, I'm a, I was a congressional staffer for about a decade, ran congressional campaigns as a campaign manager. And one of the people I worked for in Congress, Paul Hodes, who was a national co-chair of Barack Obama's campaign, the first early state member of Congress to endorse Barack Obama was kind of cool. He had a radio show and we turned it into, I started co-hosting with him. We turned it into a podcast and it's sort of branched out. And the idea of beyond politics is there's a core where we're interested in politics, government, news, but we're kind of interested in other things. Paul, before he was elected to Congress, was actually kind of a normal dude. He was a lawyer, but he was also a rock musician. And I'm super interested in science and movies and sports. And so it's mostly politics. I, I could have called it mostly politics, but we went with beyond politics. And we have the same central idea that I think you guys have, which is we don't do a lot of shouting. We're not that partisan. We do a weekly roundtable show with a Republican political consultant who we get along with famously, you know, and Paul comes further from the left. She definitely comes from the right. I'm more of a center kind of guy. And we really try to push the idea of like, where can we agree? You know, what are the differences? How do we understand them? We try and keep it not just civil, but fun and upbeat. So that's what we're doing. And I think it's just a real natural, both of our shows, I think, hit on some very similar themes, which is why I was so excited to do this crossover episode with you. Yeah, me too. And what was really fun was, you know, we started going back and forth on, well, what do we want to talk about? We discovered that we have an affinity and okay, nerds, get excited, nerds. <laughs> we have an affinity for some, some kind of wonky topics. But I think there, there are topics that really matter for people who care about why are our politics so screwed up? Why is the Congress so screwed up? You actually, as an expert, have some answers. I have some theories. You have answers. You're the expert. And so we wanted to go down that particular road. So many roads we could have chosen. But let's get into it. So you suggested this theme. What's wrong with Congress and how do we fix it? And the jumping off point you suggested is... I'm going to, I'm going to put some words in your mouth. Why are so many of members of Congress, you said unusual, I'm going to say flat out weirdos. Why? So answer your own question. Are members of Congress kind of unusual and why? I think they absolutely are more than kind of unusual I, I, in almost any way you want to look at it, right? I mean, demographically, they're very different from the country as a whole, but I think maybe even more important than that in terms of personality, you have to be, and, and you definitely could speak to this, you have to be a really weird person to want to go through what it takes to run for Congress and to be in Congress. That's just not normal. The the, the things you have to do to appeal to the electorate and, and to deal with it, the suffering fools gladly is a big part of the job, right? I mean, so there's so much that just it's just so strange. And I think we draw a very different sort of person into Congress because of that, that necessity to, well, to get those votes. Absolutely. It's, I, I can tell you, well, I'll tell you a, a quick story. When 
uh, my former boss, my co-host, Paul, on Beyond Politics, when he was elected to Congress, it was the wave election that brought Nancy Pelosi the first time into being the Speaker of the House, 2006. So there was this historic freshman class. Paul was elected president of the freshman class. Anyway, all these guys and gals got together and they're like, oh, we should write a book together. One chapter for each of us. We're going to, you know, like talk about things. And at the staffer level, we were aghast. We were horrified. It's like, don't do that. This only has downside. You're going to like, you're going to like admit all kinds of things that are going to make you unelectable. This is going to be horrifying. <laughs> anyway, so I had this conspiracy going with, oh, he's another podcast host. He was Rahm Emanuel's right-hand man who was tasked with trying to contain these new members of Congress and, and like avoid them like immolating their careers. And so he heard about this and he used to call me, he was like a mini Rahm Emanuel, like the same profanity, the same. I, I, I should, I'm Jim Papa, I'm calling you out. Check out Jim Papa's show too. It's fantastic. Anyway. He would call me up. He'd be like, Matt, stop this. Stop this from happening. This is a staff problem. You need to contain these people. Anyway, uh, I love Jim. He's absolutely, he's the best people. So the point of all this was what they wanted to talk about in the book is something that no voter really wants to think about, which is what an ordeal it is to run for Congress. What an ordeal it is to be a member of Congress. And I know that there's this popular misconception out there that members of Congress are pampered. They live cosseted existences. It's maybe people have watched the movie, The Distinguished Gentleman, which by the way, is the most accurate film ever shot in Hollywood about the congressional experience. There's a lot in there that's very true. It's not real. It's actually a very grimy existence. A significant proportion of members of Congress when I was a staffer there slept in their offices on their couch because you do have to maintain two households on, you know, you get them, you get a good salary, $174,000 a year is a good salary. But when you're traveling back and forth and you have to maintain two households, it gets really expensive. You're constantly on the road. Your schedule is punishing and you and your family are subject to the most vile of public insults. You know, my <laughs> one more story and then I'll stop ranting. When I was managing congressional campaigns, I was privileged to work with some of the top congressional campaign operatives, consultants in the country. And they, at one point, some of them said, you know, Matt, you'd make a fabulous candidate. We should run you for office. And I said, are you kidding? My wife would murder me. Actually, before that, she would want to record a negative ad against me to prevent that <laughs> from happening. And they all, without missing a beat, were like, oh, we'd produce that. Of course you would, you bloodsuckers. Anyway, the point is, you're right. It's actually a horrible existence. And you have to question what kind of person would want to yeah. do it. Yeah. I, and I think for the same reasons, people sometimes ask me, well, why don't you run for office? And, and I just think, <laughs> my God, I cannot imagine anything. You'd have to pay me so much more. Right? I mean, it's, it's just not feasible in my world. And it's not just to me, not just dealing with the voters, but the fundraising, just the grind, I, I think really that's maybe one of the biggest misconceptions people have about how much money, how much time and effort has to go into just you know getting that money. It's a, such a constant type of thing. And I don't know, it would just suck the life out of me. I don't know how they do it. It's just it's mind boggling to me. All right. Here's a pitch to you. At some point, have Paul on your show. He would be delighted. He would be delighted to grouse about the schedule. I'm going to give like a 
I'll keep this to under 60 seconds. I'm just going to try and give a very slice of this for our listeners. But you start out your week on a Monday, usually, as a member of the House. Let's just stipulate. I'm talking mostly about members of the House. It's pretty much the same thing for senators. You start out your Monday, and you start early in the day driving somewhere you know, far across your district, and you're going to an event, you're going to a meeting, you're going to get yelled at by an advocacy group. Then you're hustling to the airport for what's called a bed check vote, where basically they schedule a vote for you to make sure, and it's not a consequential vote, to make sure that you arrive. But before you do that, when you land, you get whisked by a young staffer from the airport to a windowless cubicle where you spend three to four hours of that day calling people you've never met and asking them in the best practice jargon of the fundraising craft, can you give me $2,000 right now? It is the most wow. uncomfortable conversation, unless you need to talk about hemorrhoids. It's the most uncomfortable conversation you can possibly imagine. Mike, I just met you. You seem like a good dude. Give me $2,000 yeah. right now. And you do this over and over again in a windowless cubicle while a 22-year-old tisk tisks you for not doing it fast enough. And sometimes, anyway, this is the life. And then that evening after your bed check vote, you go to an evening event. And eventually, you stumble back to some horrible little pied-a-terre apartment somewhere in southwest D.C. or to your office couch where you go to sleep. Actually, I don't think they allow that anymore. But anyway, and this is day after day, a minimum, a minimum of 20 hours a week on the phone, making those phone calls. It's, it truly is a grind. I, I mean, and just when you're making those phone calls, House Democrats in the last congressional cycle, it's similar for House Republicans. Let me just pick on Democrats because I'm a Democrat. 52 of their funds raised came from large individual contributions, okay? That's, I don't know how the FEC defines large, but it's probably about above $500. That's the kind of contribution you get from calling up someone you've never met, or even more uncomfortable, your cousin who you haven't talked to in a while, except when you call them to raise money. And you're making those phone calls at least 20 hours a week. That's your job. You're a telemarketer. Anyway, it is absolutely horrifying for people who want to know more about this. We had the former head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Steve Israel, on our show uh, a little ways back, and he's talked about this extensively. He quit Congress rather than continue. He was on path to be the Speaker of the House, and he'd rather quit Congress than keep going with this. And I think that's that gets to the point of what's wrong with Congress. If there's a big split between the qualities that make for a good campaigner and the, or, or a good fundraiser and the qualities that make for a good legislator, then you're going to have a whole bunch of people who are really good at getting votes and getting money. But that doesn't necessarily translate into them being able to work together to pass legislation. And, and that, I think, is one of the key problems, especially in, in an era when fundraising has become so much more important than it was in generations past. Well, then those incentives are going to pull the sort of people in who are good at that and are going to drive the sort of people out like like Steve Israel and plenty of others who just said, you know what, I I don't want to spend my time doing this. I want to pass laws. I want to do things that help people. But all I'm doing is on the phone, raising money and dealing with constituents and putting stuff on X. I That's what kind of life is that? And I think that's in part maybe as the environment has gotten so much more 
toxic why you see so many retirements. People just saying, this is crazy. I can go work on K Street and make a lot more money and not have to deal with these headaches, right? Right. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. This is what I, oh, I promised fodder for the nerds. So economics nerds, this is what you would call the principal agent problem. What we want as the voters, as regular Americans, I don't know. I don't know that I qualify. For <laughs> I am definitely an outlier. But uh, yeah, right. As irregular Americans, what we want <laughs> is we want functionality. We want, you know, sane laws. Some of us who are a little bit further out on the political fringes want some other things. But the vast percentage of us, that Hidden Tribes report from a few years ago, which was highly influential, it defined it as about 85% of us, the exhausted majority, they called us in their survey. We basically just want, you know, middle of the road stuff. I was in a conversation with a MAGA Trump supporting Republican. I am a Democrat. We get along great, you know, unlike everything but politics. We can even talk about politics. I was in a conversation with him the other night and we were just running down like, you know, here's kind of the middle ground that we could achieve on all kinds of issues, including abortion. Like there, there's middle ground out there that most people want. They, they'd like to see, you know, things get done. They'd like to see fairly sane, somewhere in the middle kinds of policies. We're the principals. Our agents have a totally different set of incentives. So let me turn this around as a question to you. We started off with what's wrong with Congress. Is this the core thing that's wrong with Congress? Yeah, I think when the incentives of the people in office are different from the incentives of the electorate, of course, that's going to be a big problem. And, and that's not to say that's not to say that members of Congress don't want to do good things and, and pass laws. But I think when you set up uh, an environment in which the electoral incentive, incentive and the fundraising incentive are so great that just sucks away so much time and effort, then even the best intentioned legislators are going to really struggle to get anything done. And, and not only that, I would argue, but we've seen an entirely new class of legislators who are way more concerned, I would argue, with celebrity than with good governance or even with power, even if you want to be more cynical and say, OK, back in the day, it's not like these were a bunch of, you know, wonderful people who just cared about the public. But if they if you care about power, well, you have to work to develop networks and, and, and get things done. And it's not an easy thing to do. But celebrity is cheap. And we see plenty of members now who have all sorts of cheap celebrity, which it may be easy to get, but it also means you can draw on a lot of money. Take a look at, at Matt Gates's or AOC's fundraising totals and take a look at how effective they are as legislators. They're not effective at all as legislators, but they have a tremendous amount of celebrity and Congress is now a place you can go to get that. And I think that's a huge problem with the modern Congress. AOC is an absolutely perfect example. And I love picking on people from my own side of the political tribe divide. She raised $20 million in her last cycle, and she didn't spend very much of it to defeat her opponent by like 50 points. It was approximately 50 points. And so why? You know, and meanwhile, some hapless person, I'm not even going to repeat their name because I don't want to increase their name ID, was up. Some, I'm sure he's a laudable Democrat, raised gobs of money. It was something like $5 million to run against Marjorie Taylor Greene. Why waste your money there? Because Marjorie Taylor Greene is insane, but she's also a hothouse flower who was grown in a political environment where nothing can hurt her. She is totally safe. She is totally protected in that district. 
and it's pointless and it's no it's true there there is this massive disconnect and i think one of the distinctions you know it's interesting you prompted me to think back a little bit it's true i come from a slightly earlier vintage and i'm not you know when i was working on the hill it was approximately between the year 2000 and and, and 2011 i'm not going to pretend that things were great <laughs> that things were perfect actually in many ways they were the same things the existence was really bad and so you did have to ask yourself the same question who on earth would want to do that so you did have that same problem going but i think there was a little bit of a difference 10 and 20 years ago my my mentor in grad school was david gergen who was he's advised four presidents he appears on cnn all the time and he said there are two kinds of people who run for congress people who go there to be somebody and people who go there to do something and his advice was don't be someone who goes there to be somebody because if you define yourself and your ego through that, it is ephemeral, it will get taken away from you in some wave election, and it is empty, and it's a bad existence. Go there to do something. It's the difference between what used to be called workhorses and show horses. And I would submit that there used to be more workhorses. There used to be more rewards and incentives for going and believing in something and being a workhorse and the scales have tilted and we have a lot of show horses a lot of people who go there to be somebody and that is one of the fundamental things that's broken i would definitely agree with that and you know you touched on i think another important point in mentioning marjorie taylor green so you know she her seat her seat is safe right and it's important to point out that almost every member's seat is or at least every party's seat is safe. And it, there's been a pretty precipitous decline. It's around the, the turn of the century. There were maybe around 100 or so competitive seats in the House. And now we're talking maybe 40 or so, 40, 50 at tops. And that's a huge deal because if you're in a less competitive district, there's a lot less of a reason for you to get stuff done to moderate your behavior. In fact, I'd argue the incentive is to be more extreme because if you're in a safe district, the biggest concern you may have is being primaried by someone to your right or someone to your left. I mean, that's how we'll go back to AOC. That's how she got in, right? There was a, essentially kind of a more moderate uh, Democrat in her district, and she primaried him, and that worked out really well. And so I think that's what's driving a lot of this crazy behavior is we have a lot fewer safe seats, and so members can just kind of pop off and not have to really worry about uh, losing their job. And I think that's a big deal as well. Right. We actually had that predecessor to AOC on our show, and we talked about this a little bit. And in that election where she emerged, you're talking about a very low turnout election that was essentially driven by, you know, low information voters on a core message of, you know, it's time for a change. This guy's out of touch. And by the way, the demographics of the district of change. I'm not trying to reduce. AOC is actually brilliant in many ways. And it would be reductive and insulting to her to say, well, you know, she's a Latina and therefore, you know, she has a demographic advantage. I am not doing that. She earned her seat. I'm just saying that the set of incentives, the set of political drivers that made her able to win that seat and put her in that position, that's what we're talking about. And that's where people respond to incentives. And I think that's really the core of 
what we're talking about here, which is, and you know, everything you raise reminds me of, if we ask what's wrong with Congress and how to fix it, I want to propose to you sort of two fundamental starting propositions that, that we should accept. And okay. one of them is we could talk the live long day, and that would be delightful, by the way. We could talk the long live long day about how to fix inside these government institutions, inside the Congress. Oh, you know what we need to do? We need to get Republicans and Democrats to go out to dinner together more. Well, that would be lovely. That would be really nice. We need more bipartisan caucuses, two words that are so wonky, um, no real human being understands what they mean. And trust me, they, they don't make a difference. We could do all kinds of things inside the House of Representatives or the U.S. Senate. It would not change anything. It would not change the dynamic. What we need to address are the outside incentives. What are the incentives that these politicians have to behave the way they do and that we all have to elect the people we elect? That's proposition number one. We're not going to fix anything inside unless we address what's outside. Proposition number two for you. Well, I don't know. If you, do you want to jump in on that? No, I'll, then I'll get to number two. Oh, no, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. If we focus just on the institution, we miss those larger drivers of, I mean, for better or worse, Congress becomes a, a reflection of the larger society and the forces and the structures that we have that we've created to, to you know, for Congress. So, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And then proposition number two is what I call the Mudcat principle. Mudcat Saunders is a Democratic political consultant. And I call it the Mudcat principle because he's the first person to whom I heard this attributed. Wow, that is some grammatical erudition that I'm not going to stick with. Loved it. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, while I'm being the grammar police, he phrased this as a double negative, which I hate. But here's what he used to say, and I won't try to ape his South Carolina accent because that would be insulting to our Southern brethren. But what he used to say is, if it doesn't get you money, votes, or press, don't do it. That was his campaign advice. Money, votes, and press. Now, I say it in that order because it makes a nice acronym, MVP, which is easy to remember. The truth of the matter is, the only reason as a candidate to go after the money and the press is to get the votes, right? So it probably goes in a different order. But that's my, if I had to boil down the buckets to understand what those forces are that, that create the people that we elect and the incentives that they have, I submit to you that it's that MVP. That's a useful construct for us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what, what a lot of folks who maybe don't know the history of, of parties in Congress won't realize is that at least the uh, the M and the P parts weren't nearly as important when parties were a lot stronger and when candidates had to basically rely on parties for funding and grassroots support and all that sort of stuff. But now there are a bunch of individual enterprises and they can freelance and for better or for worse. And so when you didn't have to worry about pulling in money all the time, when you didn't have to worry about getting press, when the party took care of a lot of that, well, that allowed the parties to be a lot stronger, a lot more cohesive and get more done. And this that's just not the world we we live in, really, ever since you can you can argue it's maybe starting in the, the the 60s or the 70s, but certainly for several generations now. And it just took a while for that thing to really kick in. But weaker parties, I think, is a huge problem. 
Do you mind if we go down that rabbit hole for a second? Because yeah. this is super interesting to me. I think you're right. This is a sort of, it's maybe a classic case of unintended consequences. And it's it's an under understood, ooh, that's bad, huh? under understood <laughs> aspect of what's gone all awry in American politics. But it's also a well-studied problem in political science. This is something that you and a lot of your political science colleagues write about and think about is the loss of the power structure concentrated in the two major political parties. What precipitated that? Why have the parties become so much less powerful? I will act, I'd actually date it back to, believe it or not, almost a century ago and the progressive movement. And this idea to a laudable idea to, to make the process more open and more democratic. And maybe the most famous thing we got out of that was right. Direct election of senators was one of the big things. And a lot of these moves made a lot of sense. And then we can maybe go jump forward and campaign finance reform. And all of a sudden, you know, we want to limit the uh, impact thinking was limit the impact of money in politics. So let's set a cap on the amount of money that people can donate a couple thousand dollars. But wait a second, if you cap the amount that people can donate, but you don't cap the amount that people can spend, well, your money's coming out of eyedroppers and you have to spew it out of a fire hose. Well, what's that going to mean? It's going to mean people going to have to go crazy raising money. And so a lot of these reforms, not only that, but opening up the system so that you no longer have these smoke-filled rooms where the party elite uh, basically nominate the people. But now we, all of a sudden you have open primaries where or you, have, you have party primaries that are meaningful where the, the party members actually vote on that. And given what we know about primaries is they're very low turnout, averaging around somewhere around 20-something percent of eligible voters. Who's going to turn out for those? Well, it's going to be the most extreme, the sort of the most involved tend to be the most extreme folks. And so you get these much more extreme people who can appeal to the diehard extremists who are going to vote, who even know when the primary election is, right? And so all of these reforms that I think made a lot of sense and first swipe, but there actually were a lot, I feel, of pretty significant unintended consequences to them. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Wow, there's so much. Oh, my gosh. There's so much good stuff in that answer. Let me pick up on two threads. Okay. Direct election of senators. Awesome. Campaign. Finance. That's a topic. Oh, boy. This is going to be a great rabbit hole. Let me pick up on two pieces of this. One is, and I'm more familiar with the Democratic side. Sorry. But we're all familiar with, I, I used to work in New Hampshire politics. And I'll tell something. I, I love all my New Hampshire peeps. New Hampshire people have a vastly inflated sense of their own importance in American politics. Okay. Love you, people. Love you. But the rest of the country doesn't care. Also, the New Hampshire primary, not that influential. Also, this is going to come as a shock to our folks in New Hampshire. This is actually not a feature that's written into the U.S. Constitution that we have the New Hampshire primary. Go it actually is a New Hampshire law that they have to schedule the New Hampshire presidential primary. I know we're talking about Congress, but it, it's, it ties in. They actually have to schedule it as the first primary. And so like, that's a whole, that's a whole deal right there. The modern primary system really came in, into place in, let me get this right, 1968, right? And this was intended as a reform to the smoke-filled rooms. This was intended to democratize the process, not have party caucuses, not have the 
this is, boy, this is like going even deeper. But if you read the the Robert Caro biographies of Lyndon Johnson, one of the fundamental mistakes that Lyndon Johnson made in seeking the presidential nomination in 1960 and earlier is that he believed that it would all get determined by inside players at the convention. And so he was appealing to his fellow senators and he thought, eh, this guy will deliver this state, this guy will. And you know what? He wasn't crazy wrong about that. That is largely how these things went. But there were also some primaries. And it turned out that Kennedy was a lot more competitive in primaries. And after 1968, the Democratic Party decided that they wanted more things to be determined in primaries. And that's where you see the modern primary system come up. Less smoke-filled rooms, more kind of democracy. I love democracy. I'm a democracy guy. I don't want democracy to end, which is why I'm so against Donald Trump. But one of the unintended consequences there is you have this kind of free-for-all where there's less of that central control that you're talking about. And you've kind of seen this seesaw effect. After a while, it was decided, you know what? We've had too much of a good thing. And so Democrats brought in what they call their superdelegate system. And since, like the Pentagon, they're always fighting the last war, they're like, all right, this will allow party insiders to have more control over the selection process. And that was all well and good. And Barack Obama used superdelegates very effectively, along with understanding primaries versus caucuses to win the nomination in 2008. Then it was decided hmm, in 2016, Democrats didn't like the fact that the party was kind of putting its thumb on the scale for Clinton over Bernie Sanders. So they decided to dilute the influence of superdelegates. And so we've kind of seen this seesaw effect. One more thing to throw in there. What about, you remember Al Gore got into trouble for going and raising money at a Buddhist temple. And what oh, he was yeah. trying to raise was what at the time was called soft money. And under the old set of election finance laws, parties could raise gobs of soft money. And the key is it was all filtered through the parties and they controlled it. So that was another nexus of the party got to select who the candidates were, who they were backing. They got to have a massive thumb on the scale. I just wanted to connect that over because thumb on the scale is exactly what at times reformers have tried to correct for. But the unintended consequence is when you get rid of that, and you and this was a McCain-Feingold thing. They, get, they got rid of this soft money aspect. When you lose that party control, all of a sudden you get all of these effects and you see people selecting all kinds of people who are closer to the French. Wow, that was a long stem winder there. I just loved your answer so much. I had to like jump on it. No, I, one, one thing I wanted to point out, I think this is really important. I, I don't think we should go back to a smoke-filled room sort of pre, you know, it, pre-1960 situation, because one of the big problems, if you have a bunch of party elites in a smoke filler, not necessarily anymore now, but in a room doing this, well, sure, you might get, you might filter out the the crazies. You might filter out the, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Donald Trumps, those sort of folks. But if they're going to be, and they usually, they almost always were, a bunch of old white guys yeah. from very, what you filter out is a lot of important diversity. A lot There were a lot of voices that were not 
being brought into the process. And so it's really difficult to find that balance of bringing in the diversity and making sure that people are heard and have a part in the process and still have some sort of mechanism to keep out the crazies. And I, I would argue that we've maybe tilted a little too far in the get, letting the crazies in sort of direction right now. Yeah. I, and even if there are people among our listeners who are like, hey, when you say crazies, hold on, I resemble that <laughs> remark. I, I, I defy you to look at my political views and say that I'm crazy. I mean, what we might even be talking about is just what the behavioral economists would call nudges. You know, yeah, like yeah. the Richard Thalers of the world would say, let's try to nudge things in the direction of, you know, more, more mainstream. You know, if, if you want the ability to elect your AOCs, your Mondaire Joneses, even your Lauren Boberts, if you want that to be part of the wide color palette that we paint with in our American, I don't know, I'm stretching a metaphor <laughs> way too far. You know, what color is Lauren Boebert in that? You know, something shocking, Green. you know, sure. But you want to have the ability for the vast, there's something in politics. I wanted to ask you about this. I've been a little obsessed with this. There, there, I learned this in core political science classes when I was in college, the median voter theorem. The idea that there is a median, you could kind of graph political scientists love graph. It adds the science part. And you could kind of graph on a line, like here are, you know, your voters from one extreme to the other. And it's going to have this like bell curve to it. Right. And, you know, the fat part of the bell curve, not insulting our Americans here, the, the big part of the bell curve, the high part of the bell curve is going to be kind of in the middle. That's where your median voter is. And so your politicians are going to want to stick in terms of their views and their expressed political opinions pretty close to that that median. And that will allow them to capture most of the votes. If they get too far off to the extremes, then someone else will position themselves closer to the median and they'll get more votes. Seems pretty easy, except it doesn't work at all, right? Like there, it bears absolutely no resemblance to the real world. Am I off base on that? Oh, but yeah. And, and there's one huge problem with this theory is that it assumes that every voter is equally likely to vote. Ah, and yes. Those median voters, those kind of like sort of lukewarmish sort of, ah, you know, those are the folks who are going to be much less likely to vote, much less likely to respond to that phone call saying, give me a, give me $2,000. So those are in some way your least valuable people because you have to work the hardest to get them even to come out to the polls. Whereas if you can just energize and get out your base, that's going to be a lot more effective strategy. And, and that's, I think, why, you know, the median voter theory doesn't really work and why you see most members just focusing on energizing their base and making sure those people get out because those are the people that they know are going to be the most likely to come out and support them and do all the things you need to get that MVP. You know, this is a perfect segue, in my mind anyway, what you just said is a perfect segue between the what's wrong with Congress and how do we fix it? And what I might do, I have no idea where we're going to divide these episodes and how long we're going to go here. One's going to go in your feed. One's going to go in mine. This is going to be, we're on a voyage of discovery here. Let me just suggest this. I'm going to suggest that maybe we make the break somewhere around here and maybe we get out on the thought that you just offered, which is, this is one of the things that's broken. And I know this is down in the weeds. We promised we'd be down in the weeds on this. 
But I think what you just said is really important. I, I just want to underscore it for a second, and then we can switch over to the how to fix it, okay? This is something that is broken, maybe not necessarily anyone's fault. It just is. What you do on a campaign, when you start out as a campaign manager, and I learned this, by the way, in grad school from Mickey Edwards, who was wow. a right-hand man in Congress to Newt Gingrich, okay? Like I said, I'm a Democrat. He is a staunch conservative. There are things we can learn from one another. There's common ground. He's an awesome dude. Anyway, that's, that is one thing that's lost. I, I can't imagine myself saying this about like Matt Gates or some other staunch MAGA person. The very first thing you do as a campaign manager is you sit down and you figure out what are your vote goals? What do you project? Like, like, let's say you're running a campaign in a congressional district and just for round numbers, there's a million voters in the district and you expect about 500,000 of them to turn out in a given election. Well, then you need 250,000 plus one in order to win. And you've established your vote goal. The next question you have is after you've come up with your fundraising plan and you decide how much you have to deal with in terms of resources is how do you get those voters? And one of the problems that, Mike, you were just talking about here that has crept up in American politics is we used to think about these things in terms of marginal propensity to turn out, right? So like you you could score voters. We still do this. I mean, you score voters on, on two measures. How likely are they to show up? And how likely are they to be with you, to be on your side? And the most efficient thing to do as a campaign, the people who are already going to show up and are already with you shouldn't spend a lot of time and resources on them. Like they're with you. They're a sure thing. That's great. The people who are very unlikely to show up or who are very unlikely to be with you, don't spend time and resources on them. What you're looking for is people kind of in the middle. And the problem that we face right now, one of the things that's broken is that the people who are most likely to show up or who you want, who are kind of in the middle, who you want to motivate to show up tend to also be the people who are a little bit further toward the extreme, who are more activist within the party. So to appeal to those people, to convince them, hey, you really want to show up or hey, once you show up, you really want to vote for me, you have to make your messaging more extreme. That is what's forcing our politicians into these more narrow, more extreme channels. And it is a big part of what is broken. And I would argue that it's easier to do than ever because there really is more at stake in a fundamental way. A lot of people probably don't realize this, but for a long time, Congress was the Democratic branch of government. I mean, big D Democratic branch of government. From, from 1975 to 1995, the Democrats controlled the House every single year by an average of 94 seats. 94 wow. seats. I, I mean, never, I, 94 seats? I didn't even I, know that. That's astonishing, right? And so there was a period that the Democrats controlled both the House and the Senate from 55 until 81. That's a huge swath of time, right? And since then, of course, it's gone back and forth. But the point being is that whenever there's an election that you can make a plausible argument is potentially going to change, flip control of the chain chamber, well, yeah, a lot is at stake. But for 
generations, literally, there wasn't that at stake. And so if you're looking at a 90-seat deficit, you know you're not going to win that. So you have a lot more incentive to cooperate, to work, with, to get your little piece of something. But now, why would you do that? Why would you give the other party a win when there's a really good chance you're going to flip it next time and get much more of what you want? And I think that really is driving an awful lot of this. And it's a good way to motivate voters because saying that, well, hey, you know, do you really want well, you know, Nancy Pelosi to be the next speaker or what have you? And that, that, that can drive people in a way that wasn't really a lever that wasn't available 30, 40 years ago. Well, that's a really profound point because I think it's absolutely true. Both parties, I hate both sides of them. I hate it, but <laughs> it, in this case, it applies. Both parties have found themselves, it's like during the Cold War where there were Sovietologists, there were Americanologists or whatever they called them in Russia. There, there were people who knew how, what the rules of that game were, how to play it. And it was awful. There was, it was based on a premise of mutually assured destruction. People knew the rules of the game. And in a way, there was safety in that because it was such a constrained set of choices and strategies. We are locked into that kind of a, a situation now between the Republicans and the Democrats. Each side is convinced, convinced that they are one election away from running the table, grabbing hold of the reins and getting ready to go hard in the direction that they want and they get in while the getting is good. <laughs> you know, they, and the other party is saying, okay, fine, but we are just now one election away from completely reversing it. There is no incentive to say, all right, look, we are better served. I'll just, I'll give you a practical example. I always worked for members of Congress in close districts, in swing districts. And it was always very important to us in voting decisions and in messaging decisions to call out how, and I was working for Democrats, how we'd worked with Republicans, how things were bipartisan, how, you know, every time George W. Bush gave a speech, the member of Congress, I would write his talking points to go to the press with right afterwards. And the very first thing we would start with is, Here's where I agreed with the president. Here are a few things I would do differently. There is zero incentive to do that these days. Wow, we've called out a lot of problems. All right, <laughs> can I propose that we switch over to some solutions? Should we yes, talk? let's do that. Let's Absolutely. talk faces. All right. That's it for part one. We hope you enjoyed it. Before you go and jump over to the Politics Guys podcast for part two, don't forget to hit that follow and subscribe button, please, so we can have you back. By the way, if you like to watch your podcast on YouTube, you can find clips from this show and a lot more at the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. And we will see you back real soon.